Hello and welcome to Water's Wavelength. Uh, my name is Anthony Malaki and I'm the U.S. Editor of Water. And as always, I'm joined by James Rundle, News Editor for Water. Hi, everybody. Uh, today we have a special guest for you all as Michael Radzimski is here to talk some tech with us. Uh, Michael, uh, he has 30 years of experience. Uh, he's, he was at uh, Lord Abbott as their chief information officer. He's there for 13 years. He also worked 13 years, I believe, at Bankers Trust and four at Citigroup, correct? That's right, that's correct. Very good. And if you've ever been to like Waters USA, um, Buy Side Technology North American Summit, um, there's a good chance that you've seen uh, Michael speaking on our panels, at our, on our C-level panels, uh, because he always provides some good insight. So we figured, you know, in case you haven't ever been able to make out to one of our events, have you in today and uh, have a quick little conversation here about technology and what you're seeing in the industry. Well, great. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So, you know, we were just kind of quickly talking before the podcast about some interesting things about where the industry is moving. But I guess maybe just take a step back and start with, you know, 30 years you've been in this industry. Can you kind of just give a little bit of perspective uh, for some of our listeners as to how technology in the, the, the capital market space, in the finance space, how it's kind of evolving and changing right now, what you think maybe some of the more interesting trends are that you're seeing? Uh, absolutely. So, you know, reflecting on, on uh, 30 years of experience, you should know in terms of background that I tend to have a enterprise architecture view of technology in financial firms. And that means projects shouldn't just be random activities. There should be some vision of a cohesive structure that, uh, that, that it all fits into. And, but that has to be balanced by innovation, which has been happening in technology since I started in my career. And the, the one observation I would make is that when it comes down to it, convenience will overrule everything else. <laughs> so, yeah. so I've been in more than one situation uh, in my uh, career where, so when I was at Bankers Trust back in the, a long time ago, uh, we were an IBM shop, we used IBM PCs, and the next thing we were going to upgrade to was OS2. Okay. And we began to hear about this kind of tinker toy thing called Windows that some of our guys were playing with in some parts of the business, and it was convenient, but it was kind of annoying because it didn't fit our nice, and we had a very well-designed corporate architecture. But lo and behold, the energy and the enthusiasm and the value of Windows grew and grew and grew and grew, and, grew and I finally ended up on the committee where we decided not to go with OS2, we converted over to Windows. So that was a case of innovation overruling everything else. Yeah. Uh, and I, I can cite a number of examples of that over the course of time. So I'd say, you know, folks should kind of be on the eye for the innovation, which maybe when it first hits the corporate infrastructure doesn't really fit or it's inconvenient to the structure as it exists, and yet it's so powerful, uh, it will eventually take root. Same thing happened when iPhones came in. The folks started using them, they loved them, and figured out how to hook them to the corporate email infrastructure. And uh, in from an architectural standpoint, there was, you know, I think a lot of firms ended up in the catch-up mode to try to make sure that fit in, but it was another case of convenience overruling everything. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, um, just hearing you talk about the kind of the Windows implementation, it's that kind of structure of the conversation is quite similar in what way to what happens today. I guess with innovation, you need the same thing, you know, it's a small group of people toying with it, eventually it takes over bank as a proper as its root, takes hold, and then changes the direction. Um, I guess from kind of from those days, um, from early in your career to today, um, how has the conversation changed around technology? Is it more of a kind of 
I guess so those conversations more important now in terms of how the phone operates. So compared to the back of the day, we were talking about changing OS. Now we're talking about changing the way the phone works as well and how that can compare from when you started to when you are now. Well, I think it's definitely changed a lot from when I started. I would say, number one, the rate of change is just dramatically faster. Mm -hmm. I think uh, you see new tools, new systems, new ideas, new pieces of infrastructure coming out at a rate uh, just so much faster than it was before. So one of the responsibilities that technologists have is to keep their hands on that uh, pulse. Uh, so yeah, that has been, I think the rate of change has been great, but I think more important than that is that in the old days, technology was kind of technology and our business colleagues like to use technology to uh, achieve the goals of the business. Now everyone is a user of technology in every part of their life. So they use the internet, they use their smartphones, uh, they have we have intelligent cars, intelligent homes. So, so where it used to be that kind of the technology practitioners were the tech people and everybody else wasn't, I say now everybody else is a tech person. <laughs> and yeah. so, and so uh, approaching uh, trying to use technology for success in the business means kind of channeling that energy and making sure that everyone is engaged in the conversation uh, about how to help have technology help our firms be successful. Sure. You know, we're going to talk about the infrastructure in a little bit, but you know, one of the interesting things I think now is when we're talking about change, you're seeing these kind of shifts in whether it's around um, the use of machine learning is becoming very popular, um, you know, robotic automation. Um, stuff that you've, I know, certainly have dealt with at Lord Abbott. I've spoken with you a couple times about kind of various projects you had. And then, you know, you couple on top of that, you know, the, the increased prevalence of open source kind of strategies of, you know, now cybersecurity concerns. And there are just so many different avenues now. It would seem that as a CIO of, of a large institution, how do you, you talk about having an enterprise, you know, kind of wide management style. How do you both figure out ways of taking advantage of those unique tools that might only be used for certain functions while making sure not to have too much of a spaghetti, you know, as, as to use a term that's often mm -hmm. uh, said, that, you know, where there are just too many different projects going on, too many things where now all of a sudden things aren't kind of talking and, you know, you, you kind of lose some efficiencies there. No, absolutely. I mean, I think you're right. I mean, in the end, uh, from a business standpoint, we still have to run the business, so we can never lose sight of that. But you're right. The, you know, how to bring those innovations in in a kind of a meaningful way that that, that gets somewhere but doesn't uh, sort of turn over the apple cart is the challenge. But it, you know, my experience on that is really that I ideally you want to do experiments. You know, so you take machine learning, you find some relatively contained place where that might add business value and get a few folks around it and, and get it done, get some experience and try to figure out how to use it. Uh, I'd say the same with uh, you know, uh, robotic process automation. So I think you know, that would be the way to, you really almost have to, when I first year, probably more than a decade ago, heard about sort of structuring the organization for innovation, I initially had a reaction saying, well, how can you do that? Because innovation by its nature is a little bit unpredictable, but I've come to believe you can. So you do have to sort of make people responsible organizationally to at least be aware of what's out there, try to figure out where they can add value in the firm and then bring them in. Where do firms screw up when they go about that? Uh, well, I think that uh, it's very uh, important to make sure that 
if you ask somebody to to champion innovation, they they actually are lo they love the innovation and they believe in it. So I think, and that's a management challenge as well, because to some extent you'd like to take your existing team and have give them the opportunity to uh, use the new technology, learn some new things, do something different. But you know, sometimes uh, depending on your organization, everybody could be so pinned down with their existing responsibilities that they don't really have the time to invest in trying to figure out how to deploy something new. So I think there's a balance about having to keep how to keep your current team involved and yet how to focus enough effort on the innovations to make it happen. Uh, so I'd say the most common scripts would be in that kind of balance. You sort of take one of your folks and say, hey, go do this, and then couple months later, nothing's happened, and not from any ill intent, but just because they've got yeah. a whole lot else on their plate. Yeah. And uh, just as a, a, a corollary to that, I mean, you talk about everyone's a technology user now, and you know the rapid pace of innovation. Um, how much of the job of someone in your role as a CIO, for instance, is actually reining people back and saying, look, you know, AI is cool, machine learning is cool, big data is cool, cloud computing is great. <laughs> we had this conversation last year about something else, which is great, went nowhere. Um, we need to focus on all this, and that's when you have to kind of let other people back from enthusiasm a little bit. Uh, sometimes, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, I think, um, I, I, I see that more sort of in the technology team itself, uh, rather than, I mean, the are you know, the folks in the business are trying to run the business and be successful, right. so they're less likely to get uh, distracted by that. I think, I think the tech folks can come across a really cool new tool that's very hot out there, and everybody wants to learn about it and use it. And I think, again, it's one needs to structure a way mm -hmm. to actually get the thought leaders in technology to be able to engage in the technology and be able to be the ones who assess it and decide whether to bring it in. And I think one of the interesting, so I've been, you know, Waters for eight years, and I think I've known you for most of those eight years, certainly, um, through our events and various other industry things. But one of the interesting I, I've seen is the increased adoption of cloud computing, of uh, software as a service SaaS, you know, and other kind of as a service uh, projects now prevalent in the market. Um, one thing that I thought was interesting you said that is that as these have become more commonplace that you think that there's still room that, that the infrastructure side of the industry isn't still up to task where it needs to be. Maybe can you expand a little bit upon that? Oh, absolutely, and I think you know you probably remember there were a few panels when I think uh, we had folks with kind of differing opinions on whether cloud public public cloud infrastructure was really ready for prime time in the oh financial yeah. world or not. Uh, I recall some very interesting debates about that, and I would say you know for most of that time I was probably in the camp of saying the public cloud infrastructure was not quite ready for prime time in the financial space, primarily due to reasons of availability, uh, security, primarily. But in the last year, I had briefings from really all the major cloud infrastructure providers, and you know, my opinion is, you know, they get it. You can go to any one of them and find offerings that are secure, you know, that are resilient, and you can build on them. So I think the opportunity now in our world is that you know, I think a lot of the financial world has not gone that direction, and I think there's potentially a large savings of convenience at a minimum and probably cost if it's orchestrated correctly in moving what's now currently in firms' data centers out into the public cloud. 
Um, you know, the, yeah, because one thing I wrote a, a story about this recently, and uh, it's an expertly written story, and you should all definitely <laughs> read it. Um, but um, is this idea that you know AWS jumped out to kind of a huge lead in this space? It seems like, from as best I could tell, like in financial services, Wall Street specifically. Um, but you know, Microsoft was right there, but they had kind of some instincts to Azure and it's kind of its Outlook platform that many firms use. Um, one of the things I think that we've really seen in the last couple of years is companies like uh, Google with uh, its Google Cloud Platform and IBM Cloud mm -hmm. are really now starting to turn their attention um, to uh, finance firms, to the capital markets, where maybe they weren't, like they, they, were, they were a little bit behind on the game. And I think that what that is leading to, as best I can see, is not only are firms more comfortable with the idea of, of public cloud for certain uh, processes, but it's almost taking a hybrid approach so that you aren't just locking into AWS, even though they keep on dropping down the prices, that you will couple AWS along with Google, IBM, uh, Microsoft, and then to a far lesser extent, uh, Oracle from, as best I can tell, is that fair from what you from what you're seeing, and maybe how do you kind of see that evolution happening now over the next two to three years? How should firms kind of be viewing the public cloud space and then prepare for that? No, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's evolved quite a lot, and I think um, you know if you look at the different offerings, they all have a little bit of their own twist. Clearly, you know AWS got out there first, like you said. Uh, Azure is uh, huge. I think IBM because of their cultural history has an offering that's more enterprise aligned. Uh, Google, I think, uh, I believe, is offering their own infrastructure. It's Google's infrastructure that, they're, uh, that you'll be uh, using. So you know, there are some compelling aspects of that. So I think they all have their strengths and uh, different kind of approaches. And I think to your, to your question, absolutely. I think firms, you always have to, when you send, outsource anything and whether it's outsourcing a process or a technology you always have to be thinking about how do I get it back <laughs> if right, I need right. to <laughs> uh, so to the extent that you can be using I mean there's certainly there's some convenience in being aligned with one provider for everything yeah. but that's one of the dilemmas that's as old of our in as old as our industry which is do you sort of go with one provider for everything for the uh, maybe uh, relationship of transitioning across the different services they offer, or do you go best of breed? I think in this case, it's important to keep your eyes open and your options open as you roll out. But I would say, to your question of the next couple of years, I think folks should be looking at, you know, and I think in the conferences we've talked about, most firms take a risk-based approach. So it's development environments first, low-risk applications first, mm -hmm. and then working their way up the stack to testing and production, you know, low-risk apps first, Higher risk would come later, but I think that is a progression that, you know, the time is here. I mean, uh, it is interesting. I mean, from my perspective, I worked for Oracle a few years ago when the cloud debate was really going on, and people were concerned about security, concerned about, you know, is there going to be safe outside the walls and all that kind of thing. And then I took a couple of years out, covered more market-based stuff, and came back to technology in the last sort of you know, few months, and it's been amazing to see how the attitude has changed among participants. I mean, before it was very cautious about cloud and now everyone's like yeah we're, we're going to be using cloud it's <laughs> sort of it's like uh you know why would you drive the car without the gas kind of thing um so uh, in your view i mean what do you think has prompted this is it just more familiarity with the technology is it a natural evolution because firms now 
just face with Dacer and face with Tusk, any of the cards at all? I mean, what's your kind of perspective on that? What's changed? Well, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, I think if you look at our experience with using, you know, software as a service-based applications, I mean, when I came into the industry, most firms pretty much ran everything on-premises. And then as the cloud, you know, buzz began to get loud, firms began to look at, well, maybe I can essentially outsource this to the internet, but I think there was a lot of resistance. It was some inertia. There were certainly concerns about security. Mm -hmm. But you know, we. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of firms are at a stage now where all things equal, you would select a packaged application via SaaS model, not on-premises. It's just simpler. You don't have four sets of equipment. You don't need a bunch of different skill sets to manage it. And if the provider is willing to pass along the uh, economies of scale then you can get a great price advantage. And I think we see that in a lot of the services that are out there. So I think, to your question, to the extent that it took a while for you know the sort of corporate financial world for us to get our head around, you know, okay, it's good to have packaged applications out <laughs> in the cloud. Right. Uh, I think the infrastructure side has gone through the sa is going through the same curve, just a little bit further behind uh, mm -hmm. with some of the natural concerns there. But I think folks have been talking about it long enough the providers have been listening long enough, so I think they've addressed you know, the concerns the financial world has had. And so I think it's, it's going to begin to be the time when folks are saying, well, why are you not doing that? Because <laughs> it's just, if you do it right, it's easier to manage. And I don't think any of the, the major scare kind of scenarios we've talking about have actually materialized. You know, no private banks lost its data and there's nothing been wiped and that sort of thing. So or got through Google or something like that. Through, yeah, 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 exactly. Like through a hacker getting yeah, into yeah, Amazon yeah. Cloud and yeah. exfiltrating you know, account details and everything like that, you know. That has happened to banks as well, <laughs> cloud service. Um, so yeah, I guess it's probably helped. I mean, I'm not aware that, that any kind of event like that has happened. It certainly has helped. But I think the providers are now offering, in many cases, uh, that your data is encrypted at rest. Right. Mm -hmm. So that eliminates a lot of the concern because before it was always this feeling that, well, you know, that you have the provider has a systems administrator who has access to their servers, and they might have access to my data. And as long as the data was in the clear, I think that was a legitimate concern. So to the extent that the providers are offering their data encrypted at rest, that addresses that concern. Right. The other one is really availability. There have been some highly publicized uh, outages, but I think you know, the providers have been addressing uh, those issues as well. And then the other thing we always like to talk about, when we have, uh, I mean, you built uh, technology teams um, at Laura, you've been in the industry for 30 years. From a talent acquisition, that's changing a lot, obviously. It's, it's becoming increasingly more difficult because you have to be aware of the kind of different kind of programming languages that they want to use, the kind of different kind of open source kind of projects that, that you know young developers want to be a part of and work on. It's something I've heard you know a lot about. What are some of the skill sets that you think are very important to have? And from just a talent acquisition uh, perspective, what do you think are the greatest challenges that uh, face banks and asset managers as they're trying to build out their IT teams and compete with other more uh, notable technology companies? That's a very good question. I think over time, uh, you'll see the technology teams at the financial firms more focused on solving the business problem. Because of the tools that are out there and how they've advanced. So, as an example, I saw a briefing last year, and one of the uh, components in there was how they talked about how Uber was created okay. in terms of the application itself. Mm -hmm. And I think 
um, and I don't want to necessarily get the vendors wrong, but I think you know Vox was the underlying storage infrastructure. There may have been the underlying compute infrastructure, but again, cloud-based storage, cloud-based compute. They acquired a payment infrastructure to deal with you know all the credit card payments uh, to and from, and essentially they assembled a set of powerful public cloud-based infrastructure, and the and then wrote the Uber app on top of that. So. Uh, and that app was then focused on user experience. And I think, my feeling is that's, you know, I used to think it was always build versus buy. I think this is kind of a new model, which is sort of the orchestrate powerful cloud services model. So, you know, I think about uh, talent acquisition, I would think that the folks, if the, the folks coming in, particularly if they're coming in, uh, they're trying to hire folks entering the workforce, they need to be m more business centric, they need to be really aware of these new models, and they've probably been creating things like this in, in high school <laughs> just right, for, right. for fun anyway. <laughs> right, right. Um, but I think it's going to be th that, assembling of powerful tools to do something quickly rather than doing kind of massive builds. I think the massive builds would be reserved for, uh, you know, some major systems for sure. So the next time a bank has to replace the system that does, you know, the checking account processing, that's a major build, and you can't really avoid that. But uh, for a lot of what adds value in the business, trying to make things easier for uh, your clients or help you, you know, do your function better, whether it's investment management or trading or something, it's going to need sort of business-minded technologists who are more about kind of orchestrating the powerful technology that's out there, I think. So if you were, um, if you were talking to a recent graduate who you wanted to hire, but they were perhaps torn between coming to work for you on Wall Street or going to work for a Google or a Facebook or something like that. How, what would you say to them convincing that Wall Street was really the place to work? Without trying to make you a cheerleader for the <laughs> industry, of course. Well, I think it would depend what they want to do. If they want to really be a hardcore uh, programmer trying to you know, improve uh, like a Google's uh, service or like they love being down working with, let's say, operating systems, you mm -hmm. know. Then clearly they should be more, I think, the point of the providers. But if they're sort of, it kind of turns them on to think about how can I make, you know, use these things and, you know, hey, look at all these folks that are doing this routine administrative thing. I can automate that. That's going to be better, you know, or I can make the website better for our clients by using this uh, thing that mm -hmm. I know about. I think it's folks with those kind of enthusiasm who will uh, be the ones that will be more attractive to Wall Street. And yeah. enjoy it as well, right? Exactly, and that's the, that's the key, they have to enjoy it. <laughs> well, Michael, thanks so much uh, for coming in today, and um, we appreciate your time. And is there anything else as far as, uh, you know, looking ahead 2018, what do you think will maybe be the, 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 top, three the top three trends that we're going to be talking about as we come back here a year from now to, uh, to do the podcast again? Well, I, I would say I think it's a thrilling time to be in technology in the financial world. The rate of change in business has always been fast. The rate of change in technology has only accelerated. And so for those of us at the intersection of that, it's actually a lot of fun. Uh, my feeling is next top three things for the next year would be we're seeing the rise of the uh, robotic process automation. And to me, that one looks like, if you remember when the um, data visualization tools came out a few years ago, all of those pieces had been out there before. There were analytic tools, there were databases, there were ETL tools. But those providers, I think it was uh, ClickView, Spotfire, and Tableau, mm -hmm. essentially assembled them into packages. It was a lightweight, easy-to-use ETL, a fast in-memory database that made better 
data uh, analytics tool. So they took stuff that was there, but made something that was a quantum leap better. My sense is the robotic process automation does the same thing. Or at, at its root, to some extent, there's kind of some workflow automation going on, but I think they've taken a quantum leap in making it easier to use. Um, I do think machine learning is huge. And you know what's interesting about that is you know, when I left uh, Stanford, I wanted to be an AI engineer and go work for a startup in Silicon Valley, and I got uh, ended up at a New York bank, so you can <laughs> wonder, wonder how that <laughs> happened. But back then, the AI projects, and then for most of my career, have needed to be huge custom projects with skills that are hard to get. The big providers have actually, you know, I had a briefing from the Watson guys, and you know, not to really sell it or anything, but they, they offer it as a bunch of services, and you can procure you know, there is a service which will look at your face and see what your emotion is. There's mm -hmm. a service that does speech to text and voice recognition and natural language uh, recognition. But they've tried to make it so that you can employ it in a much more granular way. And so it is, it you can do more granular, useful things without having to do a massive project. You still need experts who can really imagine how to use it and bring it to bring those things together. But that's the second. And I think the third, like we discussed a minute ago, is I think the cloud computing infrastructure is ready for prime time, and I think firms will be making a big move there. So I say those are the big three. Well, Michael, uh, thanks so much. Uh, we look forward to having you back on in the future. Thanks so much. It's great to, great to speak with you.